Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Pride and Christian leaders, that's what we want to think about. So let me just give a very basic layman's definition pride uh, would just be thinking too highly of yourself, okay? Think about the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, um, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So, in one sense, humility is just honesty, about who I am, who I'm not, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, you know. Uh, whereas pride is, I'm thinking too highly of myself. Now, even the mission statement of Campus Outreach, I know it's tweaked in different regions a little bit, but most of them somewhere in there have glorify God, right? Glorifying God by building labors on the campus of the lost world. It's hard to really glorify Christ, magnify the honor of God if subconsciously or consciously, you're really trying to magnify your own honor. It's hard to do both at the same time. So that's why this is an important thing. Um, Pride's a big sin. Uh, You could talk about it as this kind of sinful independence, um, a lack of submission. It's an unwilling... I'm just kind of... This is overview introduction. A lot of times it shows up as an unwillingness to listen to feedback from other people an unwillingness to repent specifically of sin. Kind of, I'll repent generically, we're all sinners, but I don't want to talk specifically about what I'm struggling with. Uh, An unwillingness to talk about even just your weaknesses. You know, that's too sensitive, that's awkward, let's don't do that. And then sometimes the way I've seen it manifest itself in Campus Outreach staff and other ministers is it's, it's it's a Messiah complex. I'm trying to be all things to all people. I'm trying to be the total package. We're not the total package, right? Like John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. He's the Christ. He's the total package. I'm just a little fractured package trying to point to the one true package. Okay. So here's kind of a triple goal of our time together. Okay. How to spot pride in ourselves and others because it is often subtle. And the better that you can see it in yourself, the better you'll be able to notice it in others. But please, guys, there's going to be so much tendency because I'm going to use a lot of examples and stories to say, oh, yeah, I know somebody like that. And that's not wrong to do. But just make sure you don't spend t- more time doing that than saying, oh, yeah, I've been that way before. That's where we want to start. Okay? And then second, how to help kill it in ourselves and in others. And then third, how to raise up godly leaders that are still filled with godly ambition and drive. Because there's a couple of ways you can overreact to this. And the history of campus outreach, I think I've seen this happen at different times in different places, is maybe you have some really arrogant, prideful leaders and maybe they were really gifted uh, in some certain ministry gifts and skills, but they lacked a lot of character and integrity. And it's like the next generation that comes after them can swing the pendulum to the other side. Well, gifting gets you in trouble. So let's don't worry about gifting. Let's just worry about character. So let me just kind of say this up front. Character obviously matters most. You got, you know, if you're looking for, you want to, somebody to be an elder in the church, somebody to be a staff person, character has to be first. But gifting is second. So it can't be all character, no gifting. It can't be all gifting, no character. It needs to be both, and character needs to lead, but gifting does need to be there. And we're talking about full-time 
paid ministers. Let me just read a bunch of quotes here. John Augustine. I mean, John Augustine. (laughs) Augustine first. His first name was not John. Pride was the beginning of all evils, and by pride the human race was ruined. John Calvin. Beware of all ambition. So I love that. He's saying, not all ambition is sinful, but you ought to be cautious about all types of ambition because it can quickly turn into a sinful ambition. Right? Jonathan Edward called Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of lust. So you may be thinking, why are we doing like a whole day and a half on pride? Because of that. Because one of the greatest minds in Christianity says, this is one of the hardest sins to notice because it's so deceitful. Matthew Henry, ambition of honor and strife of superiority and precedence are sins that most easily beset the disciples of our Lord Jesus. I think when you're talking about full-time ministers, yes, some of them get into trouble with money, greed, embezzlement, something like that. Yes, some of them get into trouble with sexual sin and stuff like that. More of them tend to get into trouble with pride. Okay, C.S. Lewis, uh, in Mere Christianity, there's a chapter called The Great Sin. He says this, There's one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. You understand what he's saying? Everybody's got some pride. And we see it in others, we hate it. But we're also the most deceived about how much it's really in our own lives. That's why we're going to spend all this time. Another commentator named H.A. Ironside said, Pride is the barrier to all spiritual progress. Augustine, the first, the second, the third principle of Christianity is humility. John Stott, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. So um, this is all still by way of introduction. I'm kind of of building the case, but two, two wrong solutions. There's two, as you hear this, as we see this in ourselves and others, there's two wrong ways to address this. One is to say, we just got to fix the system. I mean, I heard uh, a guy that works for Campus Outreach in another region talking about a different region one time and a guy that he talked to and sounded like this guy was struggling with some sinful ambition. And he just said, something must be wrong in that culture that he's struggling with that sinful ambition. And I love this guy, I respect this guy, but I was like, um, you know, there was this famous uh, guy that had a discipleship group uh, named Jesus with 12 guys, and one of the biggest things they argued about was who was the greatest. So don't, don't, don't blame it on the system. This comes up in every system, even Jesus' system, because the problem is the human heart. And listen, I'm not saying there's nothing you can do in your organization to change to help, but that might be 1% of the issue and 99% of the issue is the heart, okay? And the second thing I'd say, and I've already referred to this, is don't overcorrect. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't say, we're never going to think about gifting. Again, we're never going to think about godly ambition. Right? Paul, in the same letter to Romans, near the end says, it is my ambition to preach Christ where he's never been named. There, there are God... I, I was praying with a man one time, and this is what he prayed. We, we're, we're, he works for a different ministry. I work for ministry, but as he was praying, he said, God... Give us the success that makes you famous. 
That's a good prayer. I mean, that's godly ambition, right? Bless us so that you get glory. That's godly ambition. When it's bless me so that I get famous, that's the sinful ambition. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I'm going to quote several people, but I'm going to quote um, Paul Tripp a lot. He's got a book called Lead. I don't know if y'all have read that. It's fairly new. came out in the last couple of years. But he had this quote. This was great. He said, There would be no hope of forgiveness if it weren't for the unstoppable ambition of the Lord. Think about that. I mean, in some sense, Jesus was sitting on the Father's throne saying, I've got ambition to go save people. He had a vision of what he wanted to go do with his life. So there is a holy type of ambition. Please don't hear this as the anti-ambition talk. This is the anti-sinful ambition talk. But this is the pro-godly ambition talk, rooted in humility. Okay, So, um, Simon Sinek, I don't know, he's a leadership kind of consultant. Josh, you may like this. I heard, supposedly, he did some consulting at one point with SEAL Team 6. Okay? And, and part of what they say, we have two things we really think about. Can you trust a guy in the field? That's his skills. And can you trust a guy at home, basically, with your wife? That's his character. And they said, what kind of guy do we want? Well, obviously, we want both. We want high skill level and high character level. But if we have to give in one, we're willing to give in skills first before we give in character. But they were smart. But you really got to have both. And that's the way we want to be as Christians. Yeah, we want, we want character first, godliness. But yes, then we also want the gifting. Okay. Um, so, uh, last thing, and we'll come back to this later. Where does this all start? And we won't take time to flip over there now because we'll maybe do a little discussion on this later. But, guys, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden. Think about Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Anything that's not from faith is sin. The deepest root of all sin is unbelief. Right? When, when Satan very subtly suggested to Adam and Eve, God's not a good God. He's not looking out for you. He actually has the best knowledge, the best fruit, the best tree over here, and he's not letting you have it because he's the man and he's a tyrant. He's holding you down. You want the best stuff. Don't trust him. Go get it on your own. He was saying you can't trust God, and if God's not going to provide for you, then you've got to provide for yourself. That's where pride came from. But this is important. I'm going to come back to it. We're about to do this massive look at the life of Saul, and you're going to see it. Pride actually starts with fear, with worry with doubt, with unbelief. I mean, pride presents itself as kind of this strong sin, right? Bravado, arrogant, look at me, look how ambitious, look how gifted. But guys, you press beneath that and there's always some fear, some insecurity. That's where it starts. Genesis 3.10, when God is saying to Adam, where are you, Adam? Literally in the Hebrew, it's like he says, your sound, the sound of you made me afraid. It's like he's blaming God, like, oh, God, you scared me. He doesn't want to talk about why I sinned. He kind of takes this victim mentality, and that's what leads to this sin. Okay, So um, let me just give a, a practical example. Well, I won't do that now. So I want to look at Saul. So if you've got your Bible, go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to look at a lot of different Scripture. So for time's sake, I'm not going to necessarily read every verse. We're going to skip around a lot. I'm going to assume that you are at least vaguely familiar with the story of King Saul and upcoming King David. And we're going to just going to go through and look at how this plays out in King Saul's life. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 9, 
Uh, we're going to start in verse 2. Here's the first king of Israel. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he uh, among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. And, you know, they say, I think this proves true in most U.S. presidential elections, whoever's the taller candidate wins. So in some sense, he looked the part. He looked like a king, okay? But that's not necessarily bad. But he's going to start out humble. Look at verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. God chose him. I mean, God chose Saul. It doesn't seem like Saul had this ambition that he was striving to be the guy. God said, no, no, I want Saul to be. He starts in a good place. Listen to what Paul David Tripp says again. This exchange is not a dramatic event, but rather a subtle and often long-term process. Likely no one goes into ministry saying, I am going to make ministry my identity. But along the way, something happens. If you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you get a blowout, I saw this happen on the highway uh, in front of me just recently. It, it, it's sad, it's scary, it's dangerous, right? The car starts swerving, crashes, you know, and then you see, wow, their tire ripped and it's terrible. But if somebody has a slow leak in their tire, it's not near as dramatic. But if it's unaddressed, it's going to end up just as flat. And the car is going to end up just as much on the side of the road, right? When we see the big crash, it's obvious. The danger for us guys, and I say us and I mean it, myself included, is we can start really well and a little bit of pride can start to creep in and we not even notice it. Okay, let me just give you a real personal practical example from recently. I've been leading this fraternity Bible study at Sanford for, I don't know, almost 18 years now. And I was going to do it recently and they just have a new chaplain. And he's a sophomore and he's a good guy and I think he's hungry and he's a leader and he's trying to have personal ministry. But it had been a really long week. I was starting, He was starting to say, hey, man, let's go every other week. You teach one week, I teach one week. And I'm like, that's great. I'm traveling so much now, and I'm so busy. I'd love you to teach. And I, and I love your ambition that you want to teach as a sophomore. But then one week, I kind of showed up, and he's kind of like, hey, I was thinking it was right before Thanksgiving. So like, let's, let's do like some kind of tag team on Thanksgiving or something. And I've already prepared something on the life of Christ that I want to teach. And in my mind, I mean, I, was, I think I was nice externally, but there was this little bit of pride in my heart, kind of like, dude. I'm a 45-year-old man. I've been doing this literally almost before you were born. Go sit down and let me teach. You teach on the weeks when I'm not here. Now, I didn't say that, but there was just like this little seed in my heart, right? And I taught, and I got done, and I said, man, do you want to do something? You know, if you, and, and, and I was thinking, and I'm tired. I'm ready to go home. He's like, yeah, I would like to do something. And he gets up at the board and starts. And, and part inside, there was a little bit of frustration. Dude, come on. Let's not do two Bible studies back to back. So I'm having to sit there and listen to him do the same. But I had to rebuke myself internally. I was like, what's wrong with me? This is what we want. We talk about building labors on the campus. Here's a young sophomore guy that's hungry to teach his fraternity brothers, and I'm over here a little frustrated. Why? Because I'm too self-centered. I'm too worried about me. So that, that why are we doing all this, guys? Is I want us to get to where the first little buds of pride start to prop up in our heart. We can see it and say, I repent. I don't want to go down that path, God. I see my heart going down that path. Because Saul, it started happening in his heart, and it never changed. He didn't catch it. So skip over to chapter 10. Uh, skip down to verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, 
and you will prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Verse 9. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. As we go through this at some point, and if you ever study the life of Saul, you, you have to wrestle with, was Saul a true Old Testament believer or not, or was he an apostate, or was he just really back? And listen, I'm not going to try to answer that today. What I'm going to say is somebody can look really great, really saved, really spirit-filled, really gifted, and then by the end of the life, you'd be saying, I don't even know if the guy's a real believer. I mean, it's just Robbie Zacharias. Anybody wrestle with that? So much good that came out of his ministry, and then all that comes out at the end, and you're like, was he real or was he not? So what, the main thing that needs to make us do is we need to be real sober about ourselves. We never need to say, I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. Nothing could happen to me. Right, because there's this guy named Judas that literally walked with Jesus for three years and then he went to hell. We got to be so careful. Okay. Uh, chapter 10, verse 16. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. So Samuel said, Saul, you're going to be the king. And Saul's not going around boasting about it. He's being quiet, he seems humble in the beginning. Verse 26, Saul also went to his house at Gibeah and the valiant men, right, the courageous men, whose hearts God had touched, went with him. In the beginning, these can seem like great leaders that godly people are like, I love that dude, I respect that guy, I want to follow him. Chapter 11, verses 6 and 7. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words and he became very angry. So, Obviously, most of our anger is sinful anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And right now, Saul seems like this great leader, doesn't he? It's like all the men want to follow him. And he hears about sin happening, and he's righteously angry, and he's spirit-filled anger. Seems like a great leader right now. Verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He's a unifier. I mean, he got everybody. He's got everybody's attention. So he starts out seeming to be this very powerful, inspired, spirit-filled leader. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's skip over. We'll go down to verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. little background. When Saul was first crowned, there were some people who said, We don't want Saul to be king. And then after Saul unites the tribes and they go out and win a victory, everybody's like, Hey, those guys that didn't like Saul, let's kill them. And Saul says, No, no, no. Now, part of what I'm trying to do here, guys, and I'm just following the Scripture, Saul started out so great. It's like he had the perfect balance of humility, but confidence, but graciousness, but strength. I mean, he, he seems like this very Old Testament Christ-like leader. He started so well. Maybe this is the most important thing for all of us to hear today, myself included. It matters more how you finish than how you start. Chapter 13, verse 1.
Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 42 years over Israel. And we could do a lot with that. God let him lead for a long time. You know, Casey said something nice about me, you know, my longevity in ministry. Just because you're long in ministry doesn't mean you're good at it or you're doing it right. Right? Listen to Abraham Lincoln. This was one of the calls to a National Day of Prayer. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have been vain and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace, too proud to pray. I don't want to get off on American politics, but I love being an American, but it can go to our head. We can be really arrogant about we're the greatest country. Maybe we are the greatest country, but, but it's because God was merciful to us, not because we deserved it, right? And this is Abraham Lincoln saying this in 1863. Think about where we're at, guys. And think about in the church, right? God's blessing y'all's church a lot. I hear a lot of good stuff, both the churches. Y'all's ministry, when good stuff is happening, it's easy to let it go to your head. Take credit, not pray. And in some sense, that's when you need to pray the most, right? Okay. John Calvin talks about being blinded by ambition. Listen to this quote, guys. Nothing is more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. It's more difficult to bear prosperity than adversity. When everything goes to our wish, we grow insolent and cannot be kept in the path of duty by any advices or threatenings. He is still on good terms with himself. Talking about Samuel. Do you understand what, what he's saying there? In some sense... Listen, when, when ministry is dry and hard and, and not fruitful, that's hard to go through, right? What's wrong with me? Why isn't God blessing? It's hard. What Calvin's saying is when God's blessing your socks off, it's even more dangerous. It might not be harder, but it's more dangerous. Here's Paul David Tripp again. It is incredibly ironic that the fruit of a leader's identity in Christ is what tempts him to look elsewhere for identity. Just think on that for a second. You're really putting your roots down in Christ. I, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And because of that, God's blessing your ministry. But then as the ministry starts to grow, it's easy to say, well, maybe it is a little bit about me. It's about Jesus plus me. Jesus and, you know, gets the highlight on the billboard. But I'd like a little footnote, right? Can't my name just be somewhere? A little asterisk? Be careful, guys. For ministry leaders, success is more spiritually dangerous than failure. Much power, rather than no power, tempts us to dominate. That's trip again. Okay. So, um, that was all point A. Okay, and we're going to go deep in the alphabet. Just to say, prideful people can start really, really well. That's no guarantee you finish well. B, proud people are fearful and filled with doubt. Okay, uh, verse 13. Verse 13 down to, I mean, excuse me, chapter 13 down to verse 7. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So he's afraid, they're afraid. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. 
and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked a favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to the Lord, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You see the fear? You see what the point I was talking about, how it starts with fear? He's about to fight a battle. And, and the backstory is Samuel must have said, wait seven days. And we don't know exactly, but either what happened, I mean, best understanding is it was like it was almost the end of the seventh day. And it's like Samuel intentionally is waiting to the very last minute. You ever feel like God's doing that in your life? Waiting to the very last minute, almost like he's testing you. And Saul realizes the Philistines are getting ready to fight. And my army is like, well, Saul's not even praying. He's not offering the sacrifice. Samuel's not here. They start bailing out. So out of fear, he says, well, I guess I need to take into matters into my own hands. I'll act like the prophet. He offers the sacrifice without Samuel. He wasn't supposed to do that. And it's almost like as soon as he gets done, here comes Samuel. What happens? He says, well, you have to understand. He starts making excuses. But it's, I'm trying to show you, pride is rooted in fear. Why did you do something so brash and take on a role that you're not supposed to have? Well, I was afraid. Joyce Baldwin, great commentator, she says, it starts in anxious uncertainty. That's what pride starts in. Um, there's a guy named Bill Arnold, and he, he had this little three-point anatomy of sin. I love this. Here's how sin starts. The first is the tyranny of the urgent, the encroaching pressure from surrounding circumstances. Now, I would just say this. That's just normal life. Life is busy. Life is hard. Welcome to life on planet Earth. Don't be surprised. That's not sinful. That's just normal life. Jesus dealt with that. Here's where sin starts. Point two. Insecurity and self-doubt arising from a lack of total reliance on God. You ever been there? I got a lot to do. I feel overwhelmed. You're not really relying on God. So then three, rebellion. A human attempt to take matters into my own hands and you serve God. Do what only God's supposed to do. Here's trip again. The most controlling people I have counseled or worked with have always proven to be the most fearful. When you look horizontally, you crave more control over people and plans and circumstances than any leader was meant or qualified to have. Desire for control is a symptom of fear, and fear is a symptom of trusting a replacement Savior who just can't deliver what your heart cries for. Now, why is this so important? I'm just going to give you two examples. Okay. And they, they, these are live fire examples from campus outreach staff over the years that, that I've known and worked with. I, I remember talking to one guy that, that really seemed proud. And when I would try to talk to him about some of his pride early on, he, would, he always had this phrase he'd say to me. He'd say, you don't understand me. I'm the younger brother. I'm the younger brother, and, and I kind of feel like you guys are the older brothers, and I just want to sit at the table. And, 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 and part of this is my fault my ignorance that I didn't understand what he was talking about. But after years and years of working with this guy, when it had gotten really bad, and at some point me and other men were going to kind of confront him trying to follow Matthew 18, and he started confessing a lot of deep insecurity, like with tears. But here's the problem. I've worked with this guy for years. 
he never confessed any insecurity. He was always kind of putting his strong foot forward. And here in this last moment, he starts confessing insecurity. Now, part of it's my fault. I should have been a better leader, seen it earlier. Part of it was his fault. He should have been willing to confess it a lot earlier. Does that make sense? Another guy that I had worked with, and, um, man, he could misdirect with the best of them. And here's the way it played out with him. Um, one person would come at him. He didn't respond well. So you take another brother, trying again, trying to follow Matthew 18, two, three. And it was like he was always just putting up the wall, putting up excuses, you know, trying to misdirect. And so me, in the flesh, I'm kind of like, well, I'm trying to give him the feedback. He's not hearing it. I guess I'm not saying it loud enough. I guess I'm not saying it hard enough. You ever been in one of those conversations? Like, I tried to say it gentle. I guess maybe I need to say it angry next time. Maybe then he'll get the message. Side note, that never works well in your marriage either, right? Or really any kind of relationship. It's the rare exception when that's what's called for. But later, as I got to understand this guy more, there was terrible insecurity and fragility going on. And so when I would come at him, maybe gently at first, and he'd put up a wall, and my response was to come back over the top. What do you think that did to him? It just made him all the more scared, all the more fearful, so this is kind of when you do sense some pride in another person, you've got to speak the truth, but do it as gently as possible because it's rooted in fear. And when you start to see pride in yourself, guys, the best thing you can do is just go ahead and confess it. Don't try to build up a wall of self-protection around your insecurity and fear. Just be honest. I'm struggling right now with some insecurity. I'm struggling right now with some fear, some worry, some doubt. Okay? So... C, moving right along. Can you repeat that desire for control quote? Yes. And who was that? Desire for control is a symptom of fear. And fear is a symptom of trusting a replacement Savior who just can't deliver what your heart cries for. That's true. That's true, yeah. If you hadn't read that lead book, please do. It's awesome. So see, people are proud, excuse me, proud people are controlling. So chapter 14, skip down to verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. Again, they're in a battle. <laughs> they're not winning the battle. And so Saul tells his whole army... Hey, guys, nobody can eat any food until we win the battle. Now, just stop. You don't have to have been a professional soldier to understand that's a pretty dumb idea, right? Fighting, it takes energy. You're going to be tired. Some food might actually help you. Proud people get fearful. They get controlling. They get manipulative. And they make rash, stupid decisions. Again, I wish I didn't have so many good examples at my fingertips, but I do. So one guy had a guy that was, uh, well, he was, he was leading a new ministry, and it was growing, but he had a guy leave staff to go do something maybe in the business world or within them. I don't even remember the details, but he didn't know it was coming, and it kind of took him by surprise. We can understand, right? It hurt. And so he made a policy. They wrote it down and gave it to all their staff, and here's what it said. If you talk to anybody about leaving staff, even your spouse, 
you must tell your supervisor. Now just stop and think about how stupid that is. Right? I mean, one night, on date night, you're at dinner, just hanging out, you know. Anything? You ever think about leaving staff? Well, yeah, every once in a while, maybe I think about what it would be like to own a little business franchise. And And it was like, if you take that policy literally, oh, crap, i got to call my boss in the morning told him we talk about leaving. It's just, it's fear-based, and it's controlling. You don't have a right to do that. I remember another time, another region, and again, another leader that was really weak, but it came off as pride. And his wife, there's a whole other story there, but she had tried to get really involved in the women's ministry on campus, way too involved. And kind of messed, kind of went and took some of the girls that the young staff girl was discipling. And she was just kind of flying in and just kind of messed the ministry. And so there was, there was all this controversy between the husbands and the wives and the young staff girls. And so I think it was like right after Thanksgiving or spring break or something like this. So the campus director and his wife were coming back from vacation. And his boss calls, hey, you and your wife need to come over to my house tonight. He's like, it's a Sunday night. It's, it's my off day and it's the end of spring. We just got back from vacation. No, no, this is the man. My wife's mad. You got to come over and talk. And I remember the guy called me because he was kind of, he's like, dude, this seems, does he have a right? I said, you know, you do work for him. If, if he's telling you to come over, it's that bag of, big of a deal, ox is in a ditch, I guess you should go. But your wife doesn't work for him. She wasn't on staff. I was like, you should leave your wife at home. This is not going to go well. But the guy was like demanding, no, no, bring your wife. So this guy brought his wife. It didn't go well for anybody. Sinful, proud leaders, they overreach and try to control things that aren't under their authority. And if you ever sense somebody doing that, there's a respectful way to say, no, no, this is the limit of your responsibility, and I'm happy to respond to that, but, but not beyond. D, okay, proud people are a mixed work. And what I'm saying is, even in the midst of their sin, God can be using them, good things can be happening. Chapter 14, verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. They weren't supposed to do that in the Old Testament. And he said, you have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And this can be a weird little story to us. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. But what I'm trying to show you is Saul started really good. And now what we're seeing him is he's starting to make some really sinful, stupid, controlling, fearful decisions. But then every once in a while, he still gets it right and makes a really good, wise decision. Does that sound like our own lives, right? We're, we're, right? Man, I had a great day yesterday. I was really godly and I was kind and I was sweet. And then today I blew up on somebody. And Saul's going through this process. Verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Now, notice this. This is really subtle. He had to be reminded to pray. Notice that. He said, hey, let's go do this. All the men are like, great. And the priest said, Ah, oh, maybe we should pray first. So he is, Proud people don't pray much. Not really. They might go through the outward ceremony of praying. And if you're like, this is already too much, right? And we're only on E, and you said we're going to go deep in the alphabet. 
Prayerlessness may be the greatest mark of pride. A prayerless life is basically, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you're shaking a fist of self-sufficiency in God's face. I got this. I don't need you. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. I'm wise enough. I'm hard enough worker. Um, I know one leader that was fairly honest about, you know, in my uh, personal walk with God, my, my devotional life is very short, it's very quick, it's mainly reading a devotional. And then I do a lot of prep work, and I'm just like, and he'd he just be honest about it. I appreciate his honesty, but I'm like, that, that sounds dangerous to me. Sounds dangerous if you're not putting your roots deep down into personal intimacy with Christ on a daily basis. Still in chapter 14, skip all the way to the end, verse 52. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. So he's just anybody that will help me, I'll just grab him. He's not praying. He's just leading out of his own thought process. F, proud people often think they are above the rules. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child, infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now if that bothers you, at the break, Casey's going to explain it. Okay, but here, here's the bottom line: of what I'm saying, just, just it, the prophet of God in the Old Testament was like the mouthpiece of God. God made it really clear: these are wicked people. Th- this would be something like the Nazis to us. Go wipe them out, kill them all. They're so wicked, they're so evil. If you let them live, they will just continue to be the most worst influence on humanity you can imagine. That was the command. Like it or not, that's what God said. Skip down to verse nine. But Saul and the people spared Agag, who was the king, and the best of the sheep and the ox and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So God made what he wanted really clear. But they said, no. I knew one guy. He got fired by his church. And I was trying to help with some mediation type stuff on the back end. And he threatened him with a lawsuit. And I thought I was pretty good friends with this guy. And I called him. I just said, listen, you know, there's a lot that I'm still not sure about in this situation. But I'm sure that 1 Corinthians 6 makes it pretty clear that believers aren't supposed to sue other believers. You at least don't start there. You try to. After that, he basically never talked to me again. It's been a couple of years. He didn't care about the, what God's Word said. He cared about doing what felt right to him in the moment. Be careful when you get there. Be careful when your mind kind of goes to, I know what the Bible says, but it's dangerous. Right? I've known people say that I've kind of pressed in on, do you take a 24-hour Sabbath every, on a regular basis? Do you have like a real day off? Well, not really. You know, but man, I, I feel great and I'm getting enough rest and I'm energetic and I don't, I don't think it's hurting me. Well, it is one of the Ten Commandments, so... Maybe God's wiser. When you just feel like you can make an excuse about God's word in your life, that's, that's deep pride. You need to be worried. Okay. Gee, this one is almost too obvious to mention, but we will. Proud people start building monuments to themselves. Maybe not literally, but they praise themselves. They're trying to make a name for themselves. Skip down to verse 12. 
Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded. Listen, you don't have to be some great Bible scholar to think, yeah, I think that's not a good thing. Now, we don't probably literally have a statue to ourselves out in the front yard. But when you notice, why am I about to make this comment? Why am I about to tell this story? And it's just, I, I want it to be about me. Be real careful. H, proud people attempt to deceive others and themselves. And let me just get, I knew one guy, and the only way I can say it is this. Every time you talked to him, it was kind of this name dropping. It was just this self-importance. Oh, let me tell you about this guy that called me the other day looking for advice. I don't know why he wanted to call me, but he just, he called me. And it's just constant. It was, almost, it was almost embarrassing for him how awkward it was. But he was just so desperate to say, I am really important. That's a modern-day way of making a name for yourself. But there's deception. You lie to others, you lie to yourself. Um, listen, usually when, when somebody's really struggling with pride in ministry, in my experience, they usually end up getting busted one of two ways. One, it'll come out, they'll do something funny with money. Sometimes it's them taking and using money for themselves or the ministry in a way that they shouldn't. Or it's they threaten other people with money. Meaning like somebody comes and says, I just don't know if I'm cut out for this anymore. Or I'm, I don't know. Maybe I need a different job. And they're like, if you leave staff right now, I'm going to cut your pay and you're not going to even get paid this month. And kind of these threatening. The other way that people get busted with pride in ministry is you start catching them in lies. Because there's these little white subtle lies and they just lie more and more. And it just gets obvious. Like, well, that's a bold-faced lie. It's in writing. You put it in an email. It's not true. Watch that when you start to make little subtle lies. Because it starts with lying to yourself. And you tell yourself lies long enough and it'll eventually flesh itself out where you have to lie to others to keep the lie to yourself going. Make sense? Where am I seeing this in Saul? Look at chapter 15, verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. Almost certainly what is going on here. This is the story when they were supposed to wipe out everything, but he kept the king and some of the best stuff alive. Remember that? Okay. He has a guilty conscience. He sees the prophet Samuel coming. He says, hey, great to see you. Praise Jesus. Everything's wonderful over here. I did everything you wanted. And Samuel is going to... I love this. I've got to read it. Verse 14. But Samuel said... Why then is the, this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? It's like, you're supposed to kill all the animals. And you got a zoo over here. Um, listen, everybody probably makes a mistake every once in a while, right? You're right. You know what? I did say that. I'm sorry. I forgot. I'll get right on it. I've done that, right? Um, I, I remember I was talking to somebody one time, and I, and I said... I don't know if I originally said this or I was quoting somebody. And, I, and my wife was like, you're definitely quoting somebody. I was like, okay, thank you. I'm glad you reminded me. And I was like, I, I couldn't remember. So we all kind of make a mistake or forget something one time. But if you start noticing over and over, this person is always saying, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I don't remember. It's like, it's a bad pattern. When everybody else is like, I feel like you're contradicting yourself. Here's trip again. If we are afraid to confess sin before what should be the most spiritually mature community in the world, we are sadly living in a state of functional gospel amnesia. The gospel will humble you because it requires you to confess that the greatest danger is in your life. 
live inside you and not outside of you. Martin Luther, when he was doing the Reformation against the Catholic Church, and they wanted to kill him, literally kill him, he said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. Here's the real danger, guys, is the sin that still lives in us. So when you see it and it's small, be really careful. I remember a guy that I kind of came up through the ministry with, and he's very gifted and he's very passionate. He was going to go be an overseas missionary to a country with unreached people group, and he was sharing at a church, and so he had the CO guy that discipled him come, and he gets up there, and he's like, you know, in this country, there are millions of people who've never heard the gospel, and he's just, he's passionate. He's a young guy. He's 22, trying to raise money to go overseas, and, um, you know, people love him. They're throwing money at him, but his mentor kind of pulled him over afterwards and said, hey, uh, I won't say his name. He said, where are you getting these stats from that you're throwing out? And later the guy called me. He was, he was like, man, why has he always got to be nitpicking me about the exact numbers? And I don't know. I'm just kind of making them up off the... But here, this guy now is a really, really, really godly, high-integrity pastor. And like partially because his mentor loved him enough to speak into his life. So here's kind of a side note. What a lot of us do, I know I've been guilty of this, is we see somebody really gifted coming up, we kind of give them a pass if they make a few little mistakes, a couple of white lies, a couple of exaggerations, something like that, because well, I just don't get, we'll get to that. I ought to nitpick that guy more. I ought to nitpick that woman more because they are probably destined for greater roles of leadership. And the higher up roles in leadership you get in, the less people that are willing to ask you questions. And the less people even want to ask you questions because they just assume everything is going great, Right? I mean, when I'm traveling around to different places doing staff trainings, right, you're getting to see me at my best. I'm putting my best foot forward. People are like, man, that guy, he, he seems pretty great. But I'm just another sinner. And so I, what I have to do is I have to be inviting people in my life, please ask me the hard questions because I don't trust myself. But for our purposes, when you're discipling somebody and you see a lot of potential, you almost ought to ride them a little bit harder. Not in anger, but really, I love, like, hey, man, I, I see great gifting in you. I see great potential in you. So I'm going to kind of nitpicky about a couple things you said there that just weren't true. Maybe it was an accident. It was an exaggeration. Because you're, you're preparing for the future. Okay. I, proud people, blame shift. Chapter 15, verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. You see that? I didn't do it. It was all the people. I'm not in charge here. They did. It's their fault. And the only reason we did it was to worship God more. We just wanted to have a big party for Yahweh. That's why we did it. They're just great at making excuses. There was one guy. He literally was in conflict. Two leaders that were in conflict for about eight years. And at one point I was trying to help. I didn't do a very good job. But literally one guy... Wasn't perfect, but he was trying to confess his sin. Yes, I did this. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, I'll try to get better. It was, he was not an A-plus uh, picture of sanctification and repentance and maturity, but he was trying. The other guy, literally in eight years, never confessed one sin. Not specifically. He'd make generic. Oh, of course I'm a sinner, but I don't think I've had any sin in this conflict over eight years. Uh, it's just some of my personality differences, our cultural differences, blah, 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 blah. Now, let me just give you a real practical problem with that. There's no promise in the Bible that God will change my personality. 
Right? So if me and Casey are having conflict and I just say, oh, it's all personality, there's not much hope for that. The Bible does give me promises, if I'm a Christian, to sanctify my sin out of me, right? So if I say, yeah, me and Casey had a little conflict, then probably some of it's personality, cultural difference. But some of it's my sin and Casey's sin. That's more hopeful because the Holy Spirit can sanctify the sin out of us. Right? But it takes more humility to say, some of this is probably not sin, but some of it probably is. Proud people aren't willing to go there. Okay. J, proud people minimize. It's very similar, but it's slightly different. Verse 20, Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. You see what he's doing? He's like, man, I did did 95% of what you wanted. And, And please hear my heart, more important, the heart of the Lord. This is not about perfectionism. But he clearly didn't do what God wanted, right? And he knew he didn't do what God wanted. But he's trying to say, it's all fine, I did enough, doesn't that count? When we are convicted of pride, we just need to confess. We just need to be honest. I blew it. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. You're right. Verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God would rather just daily, humble, honest obedience rather than going through all the ceremonies. All the trappings externally of worship is not as important as all the internal heart motions of worship. That makes sense. Like, hey, I don't care about what kind of big feast you're about to have, how many oxen you're going to burn to the Lord. I care about you didn't obey the Word of God. That's what matters. Okay, proud people only repent when painful consequences are brought. 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the Word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. You see what happened? I'm fine. I didn't do anything. They did it. It's not my fault. It's not a big deal. Well, God's not going to let you be king anymore. Okay, you're right. I sinned. (laughs) I'm going to make a statement that I think I can make and it won't feel political because it's so long ago. I call this Bill Clinton repentance. You know? I didn't have sexual relationships with that woman. It's like, well, we have evidence. Oh, okay, yes, I did. It's like, that's kind of repentance. You're caught red-handed. Not really. It's like you're forced into it. Always be doubtful of that repentance. So, another leader, me, his pastor, his board chair, meeting with him. And it's just clear. And, and we were trying to be so loving. And he finally gets to a place of seeming real repentance. Some confession, some tears. I was so hopeful leaving that meeting. But then literally like the next day, sent an email that showed nothing really changed. And within three months, he got fired. Because when he kind of got to the wall, okay, I guess, right? Guys, here's my plea for me and for all of us. Don't wait to that point. Don't wait till you get cornered to start really confessing your stuff. At the first little conviction, start confessing it. L. 
proud people's so-called repentance is only mainly about appearances. That's what I realized coming out of that meeting. Verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And skip down to verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me in hell before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. You see what Saul really cares about? He's like, I really don't care about getting right with God. I care about the respect I get from the elders of the people. And Samuel, if I have to go out there to lead this worship service and you're not on my arm, they're going to know something's wrong. So, okay, what else do you want me to say? I confess. I repent. Will you just walk out there with me? When you notice that in your heart, don't go there. Don't just do it for appearances, okay? Um, know another guy, and he got fired. And as he was talking to me, part of what he'd say is, he say, listen, yes, I did some stuff wrong. I don't think I did everything they said I did. In fact, I know I didn't do everything they're saying that I did. And in fact, I think they way overreacted. But yeah, I mean, it was just me and him on the phone. He's like, yes, definitely. Some of what they're saying, I definitely did. And then we'd be having a three-way call trying to mediate, and, he's, and he'd say to them, my conscience is clear. I haven't done anything. Well, which is it? He cared too much about appearances. When it was just me and him one-on-one, he knew. He was like, okay, i got to confess to something. But then when he got in front of the people that fired him, he was like, no, I didn't do anything. He wanted to let his guard down. you got to be honest. Guys, at all places, and forget about the appearances. You know, proud people live in fear because they live in light of their own resources. Chapter 17, verse 11. Here's the famous David and Goliath story. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now remember, if you know this story, Saul's the tallest guy in all of Israel. He's the closest to being a giant. We're later going to find out that Saul was the only one that had any armor. (laughs) If anybody should have gone and fought the giant, it should have been the super tall king that happened to have his own armor. But because he was dependent on those things, he was terrified. Guys, I don't care how gifted you are. If we try to live based on our gifting, our God-given gifts, it will never be enough. It's a fearful way to live. It's a crushing way to live. Proud people struggle a lot with envy and jealousy. Flip over to chapter 18, verse 8. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Now we don't know for sure, but it may be that the women that were singing and praising weren't trying to say anything negative about Saul. It could have been a very positive. Like, man, we got a king that kills thousands of bad guys. And now he's got a general under him that kills 10,000. They were just celebrating. They were just rejoicing. Right? And listen, if it's really all about the glory of God and not about my name, we can come in and have a share time. And if Casey comes in and says, man, I just want to share, y'all. I was able to lead a couple of guys to Christ this semester. And everybody's like, praise the Lord. And then when it's Matt's turn, Sheriff, he's like, I actually got to leave three guys to Christ this semester. He'll be like, praise the Lord. And it, now listen, if we're living in pride, it's going to feel like a one-up session. Just had to share that you got one more than me, right? But if it's really all about the glory of God, it's like, great! Three more people came to Christ. Who cares who was there? I had this, this happen to me maybe 
I don't know, t- 10 plus years ago in Birmingham, the gym I work out with, I'd shared the gospel with one of the coaches and had a great conversation. Got to share my testimony. He seemed very interested. And later I was talking to another pastor who happened to work out this same gym. The guy was newer to town. He's like, man, I haven't, I, I wanted to find a place to share the gospel, but I haven't really found a great place. And he, we were working out the same gym. I said, well, man, talk to this coach. I just had a conversation with him and it went great. You know, and he's right. And then after about a week or two, the pastor came back to me and he said, man, I did have a conversation with a guy and the guy prayed to receive Christ with me. And y'all know the very first thought that went through my heart? Dang it! I wanted to lead that guy to Christ. <laughs> right? I wanted to be the campus outreach guy like, you know, I lead people to Christ on the campus and off the campus. I just do it everywhere. Now, I, I had to get, what's wrong with me? It seems like a guy just entered from death to life. Why do I care about the credit? But I do. That's stupid. That's evil. But as soon as you smell it on yourselves, guys, deal with it. And part of the reason I'm telling you all about it right now 10 years later is the worst thing you can do is when you notice that, say, I'm never telling anybody that. That's so embarrassing. That's how it festers and grows. Be honest. Hey, here's what I'm struggling with. That's how you kill it. You bring it into the light. Matthew Henry Those who indulge themselves in envy and uncharitableness give the devil a foothold. If God is blessing somebody else's ministry, celebrate, right? Weep with those that weep. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Don't get envious. Proud people are hyper-consumed with what other people think about them. C.S. Lewis says, pride is always about comparison. Pride is not just like, I want to be a great evangelist. Pride is, I want to be the best evangelist. I want to be better evangelist than her. That's how pride works. Oh, proud people struggle with a lot of suspicion. So this is chapter 18, verse 9. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. It is a miserable way to live. In some sense, once the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from Saul, another mystery, Casey will explain for us later, hey, When the Holy Spirit's withdrawn and you can't depend on the Holy Spirit, you start depending on your own resources. And it's never enough. So if somebody else is getting blessed, you're always looking at them, you're suspicious. I remember this is going way back. We had a a young student leader. He and I were kind of same, similar age and stage. And I was a team leader on the beach project. He goes overseas to lead an overseas missions project. But he's dealing with a lot of insecurity. And this is back before he had cell phones and emails and all that as much. So... You want to talk to somebody, you know, you had like the old landline. It's like, hey, we got the whole team from Japan here, and we're talking, and we're sharing it around. And So at one point, you know, everybody's talking, and something funny was said, much more laughing, and at the end of the call, it's me and him back on. He's like, what were all those people talking about? What were they laughing about? Were they laughing about me and my leadership? I'm like, I I don't think so. I think it was just two people telling a joke back from school. But there was this terror of, I don't think I'm doing a good job, and so I'm suspicious what are people saying about me. Terrible way to live. He's totally self-centered. Um, Kent Bailey, a lot of y'all know about him. Um, sometime, one time somebody came to him and said, you know, when you and some of the other leaders are meeting, what, what's being said about me? Are y'all talking about me behind my back? Kind of this suspicious, fearful thing. Kent just had a great answer. Kent said, I always assume people are talking behind my back. And I just assume it's for my good. They're trying to help me. Now, that's a great answer, Okay. Keep your finger here. We're coming right back to 1 Samuel because, you know, Solomon had a better answer than Kent. I don't think Kent would be offended by that. Flip over to Ecclesiastes 
chapter 7, verse 21. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 21. This is just a little bit more realistic. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you have also realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Isn't that great? If you walk by a room, right? Like if I, if I go take a bathroom break after this, and then I'm kind of walking back by, and I hear one of y'all say, oh, that was, that was, that was okay, it wasn't that great. I don't need to take that too personal. Because you know what? There's been other times I've heard people teach and say, ah, that wasn't that great. Again, if it's not about me, and I can say to Jesus, I think I did my best, who cares what they think if I'm really living for His smile? Does that make sense? But guys, most of us don't live there. I don't live there all the time. I, I want to visit there more and more often where that becomes more the norm. Does that make sense? Okay. Trip again. This is a long quote. This one may be the best. When you look horizontally for your sense of self, you are all too attentive to the opinions, responses, reactions, and situations around you. You look too intently at how people are responding to you. And you listen too carefully to what people are saying and how they say it. You notice discussions or plans that included you. You are troubled by the advancement of others and quietly envious of their ministry success. Your hyper-attentiveness, I think he made that word up, crushes your peace of heart, leaving worry, concern, anxiety, and or fear in its place. It is a vicious cycle. Because the more you pay attention, the more you find reason to be concerned. And the more you're concerned, the more you pay attention. When you look horizontally for what you have already been given vertically, the things you look to will always fail you. There are times when I have looked too intently, listened too hard, let someone get to me, and felt discouragement wash over me. All this happened as Jesus was loving me, showering me with His grace, fulfilling His promises to me. I love the way he ends that quote. When I'm out there looking and listening to what other people say and thinking about me, whether it's live action or on social media or whatever it is, and it's never enough, if you're in Christ, and we could, with the eyes of faith we could see, it's like Jesus is sitting on His throne looking at you trying to lavish you with love and encouragement and joy. But in our stupid sin, we're not even looking at Jesus. We're looking around at other sinners like us, thinking they'll satisfy the depths of our souls. And it's a fool's errand. It never works. One of these guys that was struggling with some of his leadership stuff, at one point he literally said, Anytime that you have a conversation about me, I want you to let me know about that conversation. And I knew it. I was like, this is weird, right? I mean, this is controlling, manipulative, fearful, suspicious. But I knew this guy was struggling, and I was, and I was I'd unfortunately been down this road a couple times. I was trying to grow in my gentleness. With it. So I said, okay, I agree to it. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. I said, so if somebody called me and said, I'm having a really hard time, and I'd say, number one, you've got to call him, and number two, I'm going to tell him we had this conversation. So I'm doing that. And after months of doing that, then he's like, he came back and he said, what I told you was never have a conversation about me unless you called me and it was a three-way call. I was like, yeah, that's not what you said. You know, and I got text messages to prove it. Here's the point I'm making. When you try to live by fear and suspicion, it will never be enough. 
you'll always be clamoring for more control, more evidence, more support. Guys, the only way to do the Christian life is by faith. Fear doesn't work. Give it up. P. Proud people get irrationally angry when they think someone isn't perfectly loyal. You ever seen this? Proud people demand personal loyalty to themselves. It's unsustainable. It's unrealistic. So, 1 Samuel chapter 20, down to verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. This is his own son. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. You, you see this? I mean, Saul is so losing his mind and his pride. He's like, Jonathan, my own son, if you've become friends with David, I want to murder you. Now, right here, maybe we press pause for a second because you could say, you know, um, some of this stuff, Olin, has been helpful and convicting, but, you know, murder. I'm not trying to murder anybody. But maybe because we're not a king. Maybe if we were king and we literally thought we could get away with murder, maybe we would. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that when you talk about people and you say things like fool, blockhead, with a spirit of kind of hate and anger, that's just baby murder in the heart. That's where this stuff will lead us, guys, if we try to live by our own pride because we have fragile egos, a fragile sense of our identity, a fragile sense of self-worth. And we feel like we're in this comparison game trying to prop ourselves up, and it won't work because if we get rejected or threatened or competed with, we take it so personally, and we want to go scorched earth. Like my buddy I was talking about said, I'm going to sue him. And he, and he told me that. He said, I don't even need the money. It was just spite. He said, I'm trying to teach him a lesson. And Paul said is, I, I think you're trying to teach the wrong lesson. I think the lesson you need to be trying to teach is love that overlooks. Again, that was our next to last conversation ever. Eugene Peterson in the message says it this way. You become great by accepting, not asserting. Here's what I mean. Don't always go around trying to assert yourself but accepting the responsibilities God gives you, accepting the hard circumstances God puts you in, accepting from God, accepting the honor God gives you when it's appropriate, but accepting more than asserting. Q, I promise we're getting close here. Proud people are manipulative. Chapter 22, verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, Will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? You hear what he's saying? He's basically saying, hey, if you'll stay loyal to me, I'll make you rich. He's manipulating them. Don't trust David. David's a bad guy. Um, or proud people struggle with paranoia and conspiracy theories. 
chapter 2, I mean, excuse me, 22, verse 8. For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Now, you don't even have to know the whole story. Do you see the contradiction in verse 8 all by itself? The sentence? He basically is looking at everybody saying, you're all against me. Nobody feels sorry for me. Just pause. He doesn't know what they all feel. Maybe some of them do feel sorry for him. And the thing is this, nobody told me that Jonathan's making a covenant with David. How did he know? Somebody had to tell him. But when you start to get proud and you're living by fear, you start to exaggerate, you become paranoid, you start to believe the whole world's against you. Like there's a conspiracy theory. I've literally seen this happen. It's so sad. Here's a commentator named Evans said, Having lost God's support, Saul's only security is people's popular complaint, acclaim. I mean, practically speaking, Saul needed the people's Respect. Couldn't live without it. That's all he had. Yes. Proud people play the victim card so well, even as they victimize others. Okay. Did you just hear Saul playing the victim card? Right? That didn't that sound like the victim? Nobody likes me. Nobody respects me. Nobody tells me what's going on. Wah, wah. Right? It's like the whole world's against me. Talk, talk about how sad he is. But you know what he's about to do right after this? He's about to slaughter a whole village of priests. Who was the one victimizing other people? Saul. I mean, he literally is about to have a whole village of innocent priests massacred. But how he justified it is, you don't know how much people have hurt me. So again, let me just tell a a personal story, okay? Especially when I was younger in marriage life and parenting. I could really struggle, I did really struggle with sinful anger at my children. I'd lose my temper, I'd get angry, I'd yell, get out of the spirit. And when my wife would want to come give me feedback, my first response in the flesh was, you realize all I'm dealing with? How hard my life is, how busy my life is, how bad the kids were, how disrespectful they were. They're the ones that yelled at me first. Just think about how stupid that was, right? I'm a 30-year-old grown man. He's 10. I'm like, he started it. What, what am I doing? I'm playing the victim card. When I was really the one victimizing others, but when the heat starts to come on me, I want to play the victim card. Guys, notice that in your heart. It is one of Satan's favorite strategies for us to try to say, I'm not going to really repent of what i got to repent of. It's like, I'm a victim here. And, I, and I, I've done it, and I have seen really tough Seeming guys that are abusing others spiritually. And then when people try to come at them, it's like, this is just not fair. Why don't people? They can turn on the tears. There's another CEO leader. I won't mention his name. I was teaching some of this once. And he said this, and I really appreciate it. He said, you know what? I never play the victim card out loud. He said, because my dad was a big proponent of, don't you ever act like a victim, son. He said, so I never play the victim card out, out loud. He said, but here's what I do. He said, if I come home and my wife is having a bad day and all my kids are having a bad day and they're all yelling and screaming and blah, blah, blah. He said, internally, I'm thinking, man, when's it my turn to have a day off? When's it my turn to come home and lose my stuff and other people just be nice to me? He said, I never play the victim card externally. I often play it internally. You see what I'm saying there? Notice this in your own heart. Okay. 
Invite constructive criticism. T, proud people don't listen to advice they don't like. One of these guys that I've already mentioned a couple of times, he literally got to where there were 20 people in his life that had worked with him closely, friends, peers, superiors. I mean, he had people, peers above him and under him, all saying the exact same thing. 20 people literally had written stuff down. And he's like, yeah, I just think none of that's true. Really? It's just a conspiracy theory? These 20 people got together to try to... Commentator named Payne says this, There is in all of us an inclination to resent being told what to do. But those in positions of authority and power are all the more reluctant to acknowledge anyone else's superior authority. Okay, The more gifted you are, the more it can lead this attitude of, oh, I, can, I can be rough with people. I can be a little loose with the finances. God's still blessing me. What's the big deal? Here's Tim Keller. He says, in grace, God takes even our weaknesses and failures and uses them for us. Right? God works all things together for the good. But in sin, we take even his gifts and strengths and we use them against him. Another commentator said, this is careless self-security. Pride oftentimes just gets so hardened, it doesn't care about the circumstances. It's blowing forward. So that's a lot. Let me say this. I've said this a couple times in here. Let me end this way. Invite feedback. Don't just wait for it. Don't just receive it when it comes. All that's good. Invite it. Ask for it. And then when people start giving it, even if they don't give it perfectly, because nobody gives it perfectly, and that's another one of our defense mechanisms, right? Well, you know, he gave me some constructive criticism. He was a little harsh. She was giving me some feedback, but she did it at a very inappropriate time. It was in a Starbucks, and I was crying, and it messed my makeup up. It just was very inappropriate. We should be so desperate for constructive criticism. It's like, I'll take it anytime, anywhere from anybody. If God could use a literal jackass in the Old Testament to get a prophet to repent, we should be willing to take it from anybody. And, and guys, here's the real thing they didn't have in the Old Testament. I, I should be willing in some sense to lay down on the surgery table and say, do heart surgery on me and my sin. And what should give me the freedom and the courage to do that is this. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down on the cross and he took the wounds of wrath that I deserved. So I can lay down on the surgery table right here and take a little feedback because it's not really going to hurt me. Not in the long run. might hurt a little bit in the short run, but in the long run, my eternity is secure because of the blood of Jesus. So I can be all kind of freed up to take some constructive criticism right now. Father, please help us remember and apply and be changed for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. 